HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Omsom, your new pantry staple that brings proud, loud Asian flavors into your home kitchen. Our first guest is Chrissy J. Widmire, a PhD candidate in folklore studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who has focused her work tracing her own family's experience using food to connect to her roots as a Chaldean American growing up in the Midwest. Chrissy, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I have to say that maybe not everyone is familiar with the term Chaldean um, Mm -hmm. and what that means. So I'd love to have you introduce to our listeners what it means to be Chaldean. Yeah. So Chaldean is an ethnic and religious term in the United States. Uh, The religious connotation actually comes from the location where Chaldeans originated, which is in Mesopotamia. So um, Chaldeans are part of the Chaldean Catholic Church. And that term, Chaldean, has now become an ethnic term outside of the Middle East, especially here in the United States. And there's a huge population of Chaldeans in the Metro Detroit area in Michigan. And uh, Chaldean is actually the term that many Chaldeans prefer to use ethnically uh, rather than descriptors like Arab American or Iraqi American. In fact, the earliest Chaldeans to come to Detroit came before Iraq even exist existed. So uh, it's it's a term that has both religious connotations and ethnic connotations, but it's recognized now outside of the Middle East, mainly in its ethnic connotation in the United States. 
And that's so interesting because you do bring up a, a good point that a, a lot of times ethnic identity is not not necessarily bound by geographic borders, right? Mm-hmm. So we may think of it as Iraqi American or being Iraqi, but as you mentioned, the you know the Chaldean people came before Iraq was technically on the map, literally. So, um, and that's why uh, you know culture and food is so important to, to try to mm-hmm. connect people back to those traditions, um, generation after generation. I know your family came over to and settled in the Midwest in uh, Michigan. So, um, what's your family's story? Give us some insight into your family's journey to the Midwest and um, what that looked like. Yeah, so my great-grandfather, whose name is George Nager, came from a town called Telkaif in northern Iraq, what's now northern Iraq. Uh, In around 1909, we think, he crossed over the Detroit River, and he had traveled through Syria, Mexico, to Canada, and then across the Detroit River into Detroit. And uh, we think he came because he was seeking out economic opportunities Mm -hmm. uh, and probably was looking for employment at a place like the Ford factories in Detroit. Would make sense, sure. Yeah. So um, when he arrived in Detroit, there were already also many other uh, Middle Eastern Christians, especially the Lebanese Maronite Christians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that was probably attractive as well, uh, because there was already a community established in Detroit that related to, you know, his Chaldean background. So um, he arrived in around 1909, maybe a little bit before, maybe a little after. And uh, by 1917, he had opened a grocery store. And that is actually now the biggest industry uh, in Detroit for Chaldeans is the grocery industry. Interesting. So he was the first Chaldean grocery store owner. And although the Lebanese community had already been involved in opening grocery stores. So again, it's sort of following in that same footsteps. Uh, in about 1920, he brought his wife back from uh, Iraq to the United States. Uh, they came through Canada. And uh, in 1923, there were only about 23 Chaldeans in Detroit. And today that population is estimated at about 160,000, according to the Chaldean Chamber of Commerce. Wow. So, yeah. That's that's incredible. So you can obviously see the impact that the Chaldean community has had on shaping uh, the culture of that that greater Detroit region, um, and interesting that you say that your grandfather is the one of the first, if not the first, uh, Chaldean grocers, and that the Lebanese community also uh, had grocers as a major industry sector uh, amongst the the entrepreneurs in the Lebanese community. Why do you think that is? I mean, why do you think um, whether it's Chaldeans, Lebanese, others, um, you know, from the Middle East coming over and settling in the Midwest? What made them gravitate towards groceries as their business of choice as a small business owner? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think part of it comes out of the fact that it's a very stable industry. And once you're in, you can establish yourself very firmly. And that's really what my my great-grandfather did is he started bringing over other immigrants and sponsoring people through the store because he had the income to do so and also Mm -hmm. a place where people could work. Um, So I think that it offered a lot of stability, but I think it was also appealing because 
those groceries could cater to the communities that they were forming in these areas and could find ways to import ingredients that matter to them and things like that uh, to help create and build the community, not only economically, but also in that sort of sociocultural way. Um, so I think that they've been significant in many, many immigrant communities to have the grocery store. I don't know particularly how my grandfather got into grocery, but um, I know that it is one of those really stabilizing factors in a community to have a, a mom and pop grocery store that's something that you can relate to ethnically, culturally, et cetera. Absolutely. There's no question about that. And, and you mentioned the importation of ingredients and, and being that, that cultural anchor in a community. And frankly, also as time passes, uh, a resource for uh, the community at large that may be looking for a specialty good uh, or spice or ingredient, whatever, that they can go and, and uh, visit one of these stores and actually get something that is authentic to that uh, specific culture, ethnic identity, and food. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about your study and how you kind of got into focusing on your Chaldean roots and looking to food as the thing that connected to your ethnicity. How has food been used to preserve your culture and how have you interacted with food in that way? Yeah, so because my great-grandparents arrived so early in the sort of waves of Chaldean immigration, they had little choice but to acculturate into American society. So they raised their kids American. They didn't teach them the Chaldean language, which is a dialect of Aramaic. Uh, and there was no Chaldean Catholic church when they arrived. So mm -hmm. because of that, they attended just a regular Catholic church. And while they, you know, helped establish this Chaldean community because they were there so early when there weren't a lot of other Chaldeans, they lost a lot of the ethnic markers that, that would normally pass down the generations, except for the food. So when my grandmother's generation came around, she was one of nine siblings and she was actually the youngest girl. And uh, she met my grandfather, who's mostly German-American, uh, at the store where they both worked. And... Uh, she didn't marry a Chaldean. So because of that, again, we sort of have the dilution of some of those mm -hmm. ethnic uh, markers, uh, but she did cook Chaldean foods in the home and my grandfather loved Chaldean foods. And she died when my father was 19 years old, which was a w big blow to the family because my father and his siblings really loved their mother. And uh, that meant it made it a lot more difficult for my generation to start connecting back to this heritage because we lost sort of the main link um, before okay. many of us were born, before any of us were born. And so for me, we started making these Chaldean dishes when I was a kid, because for my father's generation, they were a way to connect to their mother and mm -hmm. connect to these roots. And so when I was maybe seven or eight years old, we started making kalecha, which is a Chaldean Christmas cookie every year. And I just became fascinated with these traditions and the fact that I didn't know what it meant to be Chaldean. Um, so for me, that was a unique thing in my life that I didn't really understand. And I wanted to understand it more. So as I was growing up, I, I became fascinated by the various Chaldean dishes that we would make. Uh, for instance, we make a, 
a stew called hummus kubi, which is a stuffed meatball and a lemony sour broth. Mm -hmm. We make uh, yepra, which is also known as dolma, stuffed grape leaves or other vegetables. We have a meat pie that we make. And then there are the really common sort of curries and stews that are sort of a landmark of Chaldean cooking that we don't make as much. We kind of pick the special dishes. But for me, I really wanted to know what these foods meant. And they were the one way I could understand this connection to my Chaldean heritage because they were really the only thing that was passed down. So for me, the food was the way to connect to my grandmother, mm -hmm. who I never met. It was the way to connect to this idea of what it meant to be Chaldean, which I just wasn't really a part of. And I wanted to be able to take some ownership of that term. And it led to sort of a life's fascination. And now it's the basis of my, my own research. So uh, it's a lot of fun to look into because I get to see how different members of my own family have a varying relationship to this ethnicity, whether they even claim being Chaldean is an interesting idea in and of itself. And so I can start to make sense of what it means to my family to participate in these food traditions. And I know that for me, it's about being able to connect to those roots and understand that heritage. I, I love this story. Uh, and I love your story and your journey and reconnecting with your past, reconnecting with those roots, using food as that tool. And I think a lot of people are, are similar in that, you know, whether, it, you know, certain traditions were lost over time and, you know, they've been uh, resurrected to try to find that connection back. It's kind of you, you're describing with your, the loss of your grandmother, but then carrying on that food tradition as a connection back to someone that you didn't even know. Mm -hmm. uh, so you have circumstances like that. And then other circumstances where that chain has never really been broken. And it's, uh, those recipes are passed down one generation to the next, you know, grandmother and mother to daughter, et cetera. Um, and I, I just, again, love this story because it really shows the power of food in culture and in collective memory. And, and also, again, in, in weaving that tapestry that I, I often talk about on this show that makes, uh, you know, the American identity and here, particularly the Midwestern identity and that food culture that is so diverse in ways that I think often get overlooked. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the type of dishes that you just described as being signature Chaldean dishes um, just sound bursting with flavor. Um, and uh, you know, freshness and, and, you know, whether it's spice and citrus. And I want to go back to this Christmas cookie you talked about, because when we spoke offline, I remember you telling me about the, the Christmas cookie, what was in it and what made it different from a similar type of cookie that was made by the Lebanese. Well, so actually, the I think the example you're thinking of is uh, the meat pie. Meat pie. Aha. Yeah, meat yeah. Pie. So our meat pies, we call them meat bread in my family, but it's more commonly known as a meat pie. Um, one of the interesting things is really the technique aspect of how it's made. And this is something I sort of found by honestly, just looking at the way different people made this recipe. For us, we make them in a triangle shape, which is very common. Uh, and it's a spiced dough that is made with black caraway, anise, and sesame seeds. And then it's filled with what we call hushu, which is a, a ground beef and onion mixture with some spices in it. And so we, we stuff this dough and we close it by pinching along sort of this tri the triangle of, you know, we've rolled it out into a circle and then we pull it up into a triangle and pinch it close. Uh, and the if you look in, for instance, Chaldean cookbooks, like this great Chaldean cookbook called Mabasima that was made by the Chaldean Ladies of Charity, um, that 
cookbook shows how it's much more folded smooth, whereas ours kind of pucker up on top Mm -hmm. uh, in this, you know, three pronged triangle. And that is much more common, I've noticed, in Lebanese versions of the meat pie to have that sort of puckered lip that's very visible versus a sort of folded closed uh, meat pie in other Chaldean families. And so I sort of see that, and I don't know for sure, but I see that as a way that my family's recipes and the techniques we're using have sort of been adapted to that Lebanese style, which is maybe more common and um, in the region. Yeah. Maybe something that we just saw around town or my grandmother saw in her neighbor's kitchens and, uh, or it's possible that even us in recreating the traditions just decided that was the way it had to be done. (laughs) So, you know, it's hard to track the roots of it, but it's really interesting to see that our version is more common to our Lebanese neighbors than it is to the Chaldean version. That's, that is really interesting. And and as you said, I mean, it, it could very well be because uh, the, there's such a sizable Lebanese population uh, amongst uh, the Chaldeans and, and in the greater Detroit area. And that could very well be a contributing factor. Um, something as simple as folding dough uh, can mm-hmm. tell an incredible story. So, wow. Yeah. Um, and you talked about the ingredients in the meat pie. And, and it brings up a question, another question I wanted to ask about adaptation of ingredients to what is available in the Midwest. And I know oftentimes meats are substituted in different ways because mm-hmm. taste buds change, traditions change, and what's readily available is different than, you know, maybe the, the country of origin. Is that the case with the meat pie? I would say that to some extent, yes, uh, in the sense that, I mean, I only am able to compare to what my family does versus what I've seen in historic recipes and more common recipes now. I would say that ground beef is really common in Chaldean cooking. Most meat is very common in Chaldean cooking. But uh, historically, this would be lamb. We'd be using ground lamb or lamb of some sort. And uh, so looking at that, I can already see how that adaptation has occurred. And whether that occurred when we came to the United States or not is a question in and of itself. But uh, another aspect, too, is about the adaptation and the availability of ingredients is I've noticed that uh, there are very specific spice blends in every culture. And Chaldeans have their own, which it's a Chaldean allspice called baharat. And... Hmm. um, my family has simplified that spice to three things, allspice, um, cloves, and cinnamon. Uh, but when I look That's at a, other... That sounds like a very Christmassy, aromatic right. uh, blend. Yeah, it's a really interesting kind of sweet and spicy blend because that mm-hmm. cinnamon brings out so much. And it really, of course, depends on how much of each you put in. Of but when I look at Baharat, it has all sorts of other things in it as well. Uh, and so I can already like see what? this... So let me see, uh, cardamom, um, let me think through all of them. Cardamom is one and, uh, oh, rosebud powder. That's an interesting ingredient. That's interesting. Yeah. I don't see us using any of the rose related ingredients because rose syrup, for instance, is also used in baklava or baklava, um, and we don't use it. (laughs) Um, so again, my family has simplified things, uh, nutmeg, uh, black powder or black pepper, excuse me, and uh, as along with that allspice, cinnamon and cloves. So there's a lot of other things that are typically in there in various quantities. And I just see my family going straight to the heart of what are the three, the three spices we can use. And I don't know if that's 
a simplification or because of availability of spices, but it's entirely possible that that's part of it. You know, in making these mm-hmm. mixtures, we've simplified for whatever reason, which could be availability or could be uh, just the fact that we have different tastes, you know, so. Right. Right. Well, I and I know that doing my research um, in the uh, general Michigan and greater Detroit area, looking at um, the availability uh, and the prevalence of Iraqi restaurants, I was actually quite surprised how many restaurants actually identified as Iraqi, not just um, mm-hmm. you know Middle Eastern or Arab or however you want to maybe sometimes even. You know, when you see Lebanese restaurants, sometimes they're, they are described as Mediterranean in some sort of generic right. sense. Um, so I was actually quite surprised by the amount of uh, restaurants that actually self-identified as an Iraqi restaurant in the greater Detroit area. And so I would be so curious to see how many of these things that they've drawn into the what they serve, uh, you know, to, I'm sure, a, a greater um, audience than than just Chaldeans, Iraqis, Middle Easterns, um, you know, and and the like. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that there is a prevalence of Iraqi restaurants, and it's you know interesting to me too because I know historically the first population to introduce Middle Eastern food to Detroit were the Lebanese and other Arab American communities that were there, and so uh, when you read sort of the history of the restaurant industry in Middle Eastern Detroit, you see how the Lebanese trend got sort of pulled through uh, into what people thought was Middle Eastern food. So seeing the advent of more Iraqi restaurants is really interesting because I think it demonstrates the trend to now embrace diversity uh, in a really specific way. Mm -hmm. And you know, include not only the Chaldeans, but other Iraqi immigrants who've come, especially in light of recent upheavals uh, throughout the past 50 years in Iraq, um, which is another very interesting thing about the Chaldean communities that it's always renewing itself. There are always new Chaldeans coming. uh, And so even though there are some of us who've been here for 100 years, there are others who are, you know, just off the plane yesterday. And so it's a really interesting, it shows sort of that growth of the community, uh, the fact that there are so many Iraqi restaurants, as well as how attitudes are changing, I think, towards Middle Eastern food and and Iraqi communities in particular, now that there's so many there who can identify that way. Right. And and you said, you know, at the beginning of our conversation, how much that population has grown from when your family came and mm-hmm. the turn of the 20th century to, you know, from 29 people or whatever you said to several hundred thousand, which is just in an incredible amount of growth. And we see this all across the Midwest that, you know, immigrants come for economic opportunity, but a lot of immigrants, particularly more recent immigrants, come as refugees and we see and there's because of faith-based services in in different communities across the Midwest that's how the Midwest has managed to attract such diverse populations and cultures because of this wave of of um migrants that have come as refugees so it's so interesting how that's that's coming full circle i have one more very important question that i know our listeners definitely want to hear about mm-hmm. and that is about a dish that you told me about called hot stuff. Oh, and yes. Hot stuff is literally to me this marriage of everything that people think about the Midwest and then all these interesting flavors. So t- 
describe. I, I can't do it justice. <laughs> so uh, hot stuff is one of those dishes that when I found the recipe for it, I was like, what is this? <laughs> because I had never eaten it and I still have never eaten it. It's not something that's commonly made in my family right now. But when my dad was growing up, they had it all the time. And basically, it's a broth made of tomato paste, lemon, water, and the spices we usually put in our yepro, which is that allspice, cloves, and cinnamon mm-hmm. uh, combination, along with celery leaves and celery stalks. And the crowning aspect of this, hot dogs or lunch meat. So it's a stew with hot dogs or lunch meat in it. And... Uh, it's a way, to, obviously, to stretch some of your grocery budget in the sense that you're kind of throwing leftovers into the soup, but it has that Chaldean flavor in the broth, which is so interesting to me because that's a way to bring the Chaldean element into something that is obviously just a very common um set of foods and make them more lively in your household. And my father and his siblings loved hot stuff. Remember it being spicy and comforting. And it's something they all learned how to make so they could make it on a weeknight. Uh, But, you know, I've never eaten this probably because we use our Chaldean foods to do those special dishes instead. Um, So it's really interesting to see that sort of mix of the everyday sort of American standbys put into a Chaldean flavored broth. Uh, This is my favorite. And not that I could ever possibly eat this, I have to admit. (laughs) I don't really know how I feel about this this cacophony of flavors, but I love it because it is literally the melting pot and two incredible, I guess, strains of, of Midwestern flavors you know, the good old American hot dog and these incredible, rich and lively Chaldean spices together in one pot, in one place, um, showing how our cultures are, are coming together through food. So interesting. Chrissy, I'm so thankful that you have shared your story with us and have really educated me uh, and I'm sure uh, the listeners as well about uh, Chaldeans, Chaldean Americans, and, and your food traditions in the Midwest. Thank you so much for being on the show. This episode is brought to you by Omsom, your new pantry staple that brings proud, loud Asian flavors into your home kitchen. Omsom partners with iconic Asian chefs to create rip and pour starters, which pack all the specialty sauces, aromatics, and seasonings needed to cook specific Asian dishes. No more diluted dishes, no more cultural compromise. Just bold Asian flavors at your fingertips, sitting right in your pantry between the tomato sauce and the olive oil. Learn more at omsom.com. That's O-M-S-O-M.com. Well, earlier on the show, we were having a discussion about the prevalence of Lebanese culture and food throughout the Midwest. And we're excited to welcome our next guest, who is going to share some of his own personal experiences as a Lebanese-American in the food and entrepreneurial space. So we are welcoming Nick Schrauer, the new owner of his family Lebanese restaurant business and and pita manufacturing business as well. And they are located in Wichita, Kansas, N&J Cafe and their pita business. Nick, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule, running all of these things uh, to join the show and tell us your story. It's my pleasure. Uh, Well, 
I understand. I, I want to give the listeners a little bit of context that Wichita, Kansas, has a sizable Lebanese population. Why is that? Tell us a little bit about why Wichita and, as a magnet for, for Lebanese immigrants. Sure. And you would never expect, you know, the center of, of America to have this many, but we actually have quite a few. Uh, last time I checked, I think we were the third or fourth largest density Lebanese population uh, by county. Um, and so there are quite a few of us. And I think what happened from my understanding and talking to the Lebanese community over the years is that there was a World War II ace, a, a real stellar pilot named Colonel Jabara, and he was stationed here in Wichita. And as he started bringing his family in, their family brought their family, their friends brought their friends. And 70 years later or something, we have uh, a thriving Lebanese community. That's, uh, that's interesting that uh, a World War II fighter pilot uh, was, was that kind of an anchor to attract folks um, from the Lebanese community into Kansas. But every single immigrant um, community and, and every single part of the Midwest, as we've heard on this show, has their, has their own unique story. So I'm glad that you provided us with that perspective. Now, you have your own story. Um, your father, I understand, is uh, the first in the family to come over to the United States from Lebanon. How did he uh, come to the United States, and, and how did he ultimately end up in Kansas? Well, it's an interesting story. Just like most immigrants, they're looking for opportunity. Now, Lebanon is a, is a very nice place, but as far as entrepreneurship and really making it the way you want to make it, America is the place to do it. I remember my father always telling me, telling me that, that you'd always want to be here. Um, so he... he got up and left Lebanon in the late 1960s. And he originally moved to Dayton, Ohio, I believe. And then soon after, he found himself in Dearborn, Michigan, where there's a very large Arabic population to the Mm -hmm. point where street signs uh, are written in Arabic. He stayed there. He met my mother there. um, And he did some small bakeries, mostly pastries, stuff like that to get by. He was doing pretty good. And uh, while my mother was pregnant with me, they drove up from uh, Michigan to Wichita, Kansas, because a uh, kind of prolific Lebanese guy here in town named Antoine Tabia uh, had heard about my father and his pastries. And my dad was just so good at pastries. Uh, it's one thing I miss the most of it. Um, he had heard that he's doing these great pastries. He invited him to come down to Wichita, got him uh, the money he needed to get on a, uh, in a car and drive with my mom and with little infant me inside. And they came here and they worked together and started doing pastries at a place called Cafe Chantilly, which was a Wichita staple for a very long time. And that's how we found ourselves in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, unbelievable. So was your father, uh, was he a pastry chef? Was he trained or uh, at least in some way, shape or form baking um, in Lebanon? And he had, did he have that trade before he came to the United States or did he develop that when he arrived? Yeah. So he started very young in his life. Uh, I remember stories of him telling me when he was 13 years old, he had left Lebanon and he went to Jordan and he was doing pastries and baking. Then Uh, he was not a a highly educated man. You know, he learned how to read and write. And then in that culture and in that time, you have to remember he was born in 1941. He went straight to work and he worked making baklava and pastry and all Namura, all these different Lebanese pastries. And that's where he, you know, he's cut his teeth on that. So from the age of 13 on, uh, he had been a baker, specifically a baker. And it wasn't until later that he started moving into food. Interesting. And, and so he was able to bring that trade to the United States and apply it where he went. Was he able to get integrated into the larger Lebanese communities, particularly like in, in Dearborn, Michigan, as you mentioned, where there's such a, a, a large Arabic population, including Lebanese? 
was he working in, in the restaurant industry there then as well? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I believe shortly after he had made it there and, you know, just like every immigrant story, putting a little bit of money together, trying to chase that American dream. He opened a place called the, the Pastry Palace and he was doing Arabic and French style pastries. Um, his older brothers had actually gone while he was still in Lebanon to France to learn how to do this. And there's such a large French influence in Lebanese cooking because uh, Lebanon was a French colony for a very long time. Mm. So he started a business up there, eclairs, anything from eclairs, cream puffs, pastries, you can name it. He was uh, just fantastic at it. Well, and I'll, t- I'll, I'll tell you, a lot of Americans don't even realize that there is a French influence in Lebanon because of that uh, colonial history. So you're, you're adding yet another flavor profile to the larger sort of lexicon of, of what it means to be to have Lebanese uh, food um, being offered in, in our country. Yeah, it is something that a lot of people don't know. Even a lot of Lebanese people don't realize that it was, up, I believe, up until the 1920s that Lebanon was a French colony. It was a getaway spot for a lot of Europeans. It's a beautiful place on, you know, the right on the Mediterranean. It's got mountains in the back where you can go skiing on ice, and then you can go straight to the beach within 30 minutes. Wow. Well, and you guys still, you guys are still in Kansas, so that must be that must bode well for for Wichita. Then, I, I do love Kansas. I gotta say, it's my home. I that's that is fantastic. Um, and so, um, your father, you were saying, started off at this cafe Chantilly uh, as a pastry chef, but then struck out on his own as well, and opened up the N and J Cafe. So, when when did that all happen? Um, in about nineteen ninety two, nineteen ninety one. Um, he branched off and when he did it, it was N and J bakery. We were just doing pita bread. He was a pita bread wholesaler. Uh, we had a large, very old, but very large machine that manufactured pita bread. And it's a different kind of baking than your traditional cookies and eclairs and stuff. It's a, it's more rigorous. It's, it's more of a factory setting than a, than a, your typical at home kind of bakery. And that's where he really started to get some notorieties. His bread was fantastic. There's a lot of different bread and there's some good stuff. But my dad's bread, and I like to think that our bread as well, is the best in the country that you can get. Well, and and that tradition carries on today. So you now have two operations, if I'm not mistaken, uh, which I think also speaks very well to the presence of Middle Eastern food and culture throughout the Midwest. So you have N&J Cafe now, but you also have the Pita Bakery, which is wholesale and supplies other uh, Lebanese and, and other you know, Mediterranean restaurants. Isn't that right? That is. Yeah. We, I've been in charge of the bakery for about 13 years. I started when I was 21. Uh, I've definitely gotten a lot better. It's been, <laughs> it's been a growing experience, but we specialize at the bakery and getting customers that need bread so that they can wrap these sandwiches uh, correctly. Cause uh, if you get frozen stuff, it's just not going to be that great. You're going to have a hard time making sandwiches with us. We make our bread every day daily. We ship it out every single day daily. And I'm sure that makes the difference. No, it absolutely does. Yeah, it's it's the number one thing. And I think that's what we have uh, going for us. We really care to make sure that uh, the name of my father, my family's name, uh, you know, is represented in that bread. Well, and N and J stands for Nick and is J your brother? Is that right? Yes, Jay is my brother, uh, my younger brother, John, who is just a fantastic man. My father's name was also John. It's funny, actually, because 
we always joke that my parents weren't very creative. My my name is Nicholas John Schrauer, <laughs> and my brother's name is John Nicholas Schrauer. So we were meant to be. Well, you know, there you go. And I think, uh, you know, oftentimes in ethnic cultures, that happens a lot of family names. Well, and I think in a lot of families, a lot of family names just get like recycled throughout. Absolutely. I mean, my family, we have like three or four Williams, uh, four or five Anthonys. I mean, so it's just, you know, it, it ha- and there are combinations of William Michaels, Michael Williams, like, you know, it, it happens. It, it happens. I'd, ima- I'd imagine you're the only Capri, though. Uh, you would be right about that. You would be right. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Well, very good. Um, so this is a food show. So I need to obviously ask you about the, the flavors, the ingredients, the type of dishes that you offer uh, in your restaurant and, and, you know, what and how that looks kind of in comparison to some of the other Lebanese and, and Middle Eastern restaurants that might be in, in your region in Kansas and across the Midwest. Well, absolutely, yeah. And in Jay's, we kind of pride ourselves on the authenticness of our food. There are so many Lebanese restaurants in Wichita, and a lot of them are fantastic. A lot of them are my clients. They're all very good. But I think what sets us apart is that we're getting those recipes from my dad from 1940s Lebanon, and they were transplanted here. The same cookbook that he used, the same recipe book that he used, is sitting in my office, and if I ever have a question about what good food is, I can know I can always go to that book and pull it out and know that I'm going to be making authentic Lebanese cuisine. What's in there? Give us an example. Well, I can't give you the secret recipes, Capri, okay. but I will tell you. <laughs> we do have, I mean, we serve hummus. Uh, our biggest seller is chicken shawarma. It's a fantastic dish. It's a slow-roasted, on-a-spit chicken marinated overnight. It's cut into small pieces and put into a, a sandwich with a uh, fantastic little tangy sauce, lettuce, tomatoes. That's our signature dish. We have kefta. Kibbe is probably my favorite. Can you tell us what those are? Yeah, kefta is like a ground beef with uh, spiced spiced onions and uh, parsley. Um, again, I can't give you the exact recipe. That's okay. <laughs> but we have some cumin and some other things in there that kind of make it like a, a spiced Lebanese kind of meatloaf without the ketchup. You can make a comparison. Okay. Uh, kibbe, kibbe is served several ways. My favorite way is kibbeneya, which means raw kibbe in Arabic. It's a it's similar to steak tartare, but we have cracked wheat, which we call burkhul, that we put into it. And it's fantastic. A lot of people are very scared of it, understandably so. Uh, not used to eating raw meat, but it's probably my favorite thing my dad ever made. Oh, wow. And we can take we can take that same thing. We, we bake it or fry it at the restaurant. Um and yeah, it's, uh, that's probably my favorite. That's actually the one thing I miss the most. I miss my, my pops' baked uh, raw kibbeh. That is definitely not something that I expected to be on the menu. And uh, you were saying that people are a little bit scared of it. What about Kansas? I mean, outside of the Lebanese community, which you said is pretty sizable in Wichita, how popular is Middle Eastern food and Lebanese food You know, in the general population there? Well, I'm not an expert, but I think it's getting more and more popular. I think the food really suits the modern uh, nutrition. I mean, we're seeing a lot more people getting away from high-carb diets and moving towards what I would call a Mediterranean diet where you have healthy proteins and fats, and that's certainly what we're serving on our, on our dish. We're not a carb-heavy restaurant. Sure, we have sandwiches, but our pita bread is not a giant loaf. It's, just, it's mostly a vehicle to eat what's inside. Right, right. And as you said, you, that's why so many people are attracted to your pitas because, you know, it's the best way to elevate some of the, the ingredients that other folks are trying to offer in their restaurants uh, when they're offering their, their different sandwiches and, and whatnot. So uh, your, your family story is very interesting, I think, in many ways, because, again, I think 
a lot of Americans don't realize the diversity of uh, parts of the Midwest as far as, you know, immigrant populations. And, and I certainly didn't realize until we spoke that Wichita had such a large <laughs> Lebanese population. But it obviously also informs the, the culinary I you always keep using this word tapestry throughout the show um, because it is these different types of strains that are all woven together um, to create a lovely, diverse food tapestry that, that is in the Midwest. And, and you and your family in Wichita are part of that. So I want to thank you, Nick, for taking the time to, to be with us and share your story and tell us about your restaurant, uh, Ann and Jay, and your pita business. What is the name of your pita business, by the way? John's Pita Bakery. So anybody in the Midwest, you give me a call, I'll take care of you. All right. Well, we got some good tips here. And uh, if I ever make it out to Wichita, I will definitely be sure to visit the restaurant. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.